Our first reading is Genesis chapter 16, story of Sarai and Abram before their names were changed to Abraham and Sarah. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power to do with her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kin. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing, which in Hebrew is El Roi. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bia Lahai Roa. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abraham was sixty sorry, was eighty-six years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A second reading is taken uh, from John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. 
The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called me, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come and fill this place with yourself. Open our ears and open our hearts so that in the spoken word and in the written word, we might know your living word, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a TV show on HBO from the early 2000s called The Wire. Maybe some of you have seen it. On the surface, The Wire is a dark and gritty police drama about the war against drugs in Baltimore. But it's not just a regular cop show. The Wire was written by a man named David Simon, who himself was a police journalist, investigative journalist, working for the Baltimore Sun. And he wrote based off his own experience and that of his partner, a former homicide detective. The show portrays the war against drugs from the perspective of all levels. We've got the highest political powers, we have cops, we have drug dealers, we have the regular users. And what's most remarkable about the show is the complexity with which Simon portrays his characters. There are the so-called good guys and the so-called bad guys, but none of them are simple. Even the dealers are shown as real people with complex motives. And the overall tone of the show is one of compassion, a yearning for the well-being of the city of Baltimore and its inhabitants. You long in watching the show for each of the characters to know that despite their messes, despite the wrongs they commit, the mistakes they make, they matter. They are seen. They are important. And there is always hope for redemption. We're in the middle of a summer preaching series looking at the names of God. As Orvin said a few weeks ago, 
one name is not enough to hold the immensity of who God is. And so each week we're exploring different stories, different narratives from the Old Testament that reveal different names of God and thus show different insights into God's character. And today we have this complicated story from Genesis 16 with complicated, sinful, broken people. People who are sometimes good and sometimes bad. People who are full of contradictions and mixed motives. But more importantly, we have a a story about how God steps into that brokenness and says, I see you. You are important. You matter. And no matter what you have done or what situation you find yourself in, there is always hope for redemption. On the surface, as we hear Genesis chapter 16, we have a dark and gritty drama about an Egyptian slave girl who is impregnated by her master and abused by her mistress and who flees into the wilderness. And it's really easy to judge everyone in this story for one reason or another, to categorize them as good guys or bad guys, oppressors or victims. But the truth is that each of these characters is complicated. Real people with complex motives. And there are all kinds of reasons to sympathize with them or not to sympathize with them. And so there are also multiple angles that a sermon could take on this passage. So this morning, I'm going to give you five mini-sermons, five angles, and then a sixth and final way that we can draw hope from this narrative. And don't panic, I promise they are mini-sermons and not full-length ones. So here's mini-sermon number one, Abraham's lack of faith. Last week, Tim preached on the previous chapter in Genesis, the one that comes right before this. And God shows himself to Abraham and promises that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky, and he makes a binding covenant with him. And it's a very hopeful, hope-filled chapter. And Abraham believes God. But as one commentator puts it, Abraham is a hero on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and a wimp on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And today is a Tuesday. And so faith is hard to come by for Abraham. And mini-sermon number one could be about Abraham's lack of faith and the way he doesn't trust in the darkness what has been revealed to him in the light. And there's justification for this angle in the language that the author of Genesis uses to write this story, because it deliberately echoes Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve. Just like in the Garden of Eden, Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband, and he ate. Sarah took her slave girl and gave her to her husband, and he used her. Just as Adam listened to the voice of Eve rather than God, Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah rather than God. The wording is the same in both stories, a deliberate echo that's meant to remind the listener that Abraham is playing out the same error that Adam did. It's the Garden of Eden all over again, as humans rely on their own wisdom and understanding rather than God's. So mini-sermon number one, trust in the darkness what God has revealed in the light. A line that may actually sound cheesy, but has saved me more than once, just remembering that one line. And then there's mini-sermon number two. See, I promised they'd be short. 
Sarah, pressured by cultural expectations of the time, has allowed her status as childless to become the core of her identity, rather than trusting that she herself is valuable in God's eyes. And Sarah, the narrative portrays Sarah badly, but Sarah is in a tough position. Infertility in those times wasn't just an occasion for deep sorrow as it is today. It was a sign of God's curse. It was a big deal. Children were security in old age in a time when there was no old age pensions. They were a family's workforce, a sign of prosperity. More importantly, they were a way of keeping the family name alive and thus giving a form of immortality and continuity to a person. Ultimately, they were a sign of God's blessing. And if a couple didn't have them, it was the woman's fault. That's how it was seen. The seed was planted in her, and if it didn't grow, it was on her. And so perhaps Sarah felt like the barrier between Abraham and his children of promise. And the need to prove herself leads Sarah to take the culturally appropriate path of trying to have children through her servant. This was something that was fully endorsed by the Babylonian Code of Hammurabi, the legal text of the time, and was practiced by others, including Rachel and Leah, a decade later, with all of the 12 children being equal heirs. Children born this way were considered full heirs. But it wasn't what God intended, and it led to all kinds of heartache. And so mini-sermon two could be about the one who voluntarily relinquished his status and position, Jesus, to give us our deepest and our truest identity as children of God, an identity that is not based on whether we have children or don't, whether we have a good job or not, anything that the world gives, an identity that can't be taken away, children of God. Mini-sermon Number three, left to our own devices, hurt people hurt people, and pain begets pain. The slave girl Sarah, or Hagar, is now expecting, and Sarah still isn't, and Hagar is rubbing it in. If they had had a good mistress-servant relationship, it's hard to see everything unfolding this way. But a servant who has been made to feel inferior might well begin lording it over her mistress when she's given reason to. And Hagar did. She looked with contempt on her mistress. And the literal meaning of this is Sarah became small in her eyes. She looked down on her. And whatever she said or did to rub it in that she was pregnant, while Sarah still wasn't, it cut Sarah deeply. We have a little bit of a window into what Sarah was feeling by the choice of her words to her husband. May the wrong done to me be upon you, she says to Abraham. And the word that she used for wrong is used only two other times in Genesis, and it means violence. And the other two times it's used are in Genesis chapter 6, when God chooses to destroy the world in a flood because of the violence in it, and Genesis chapter 49, when referring to the slaughter of an entire village. This is a strong pain, agony-filled word that Sarah uses in reference to how she is feeling. And in her pain, she lashes out at Hagar, creating an unbearable situation. 
And so mini-sermon three could be that hurt people hurt people. And it's a cycle that ultimately only forgiveness can break. The forgiveness that comes with knowing we are a forgiven people. That God has seen our hurts and absorbed them himself and atoned for them on the cross. Mini-sermon number four may be one that jumped out at you immediately on the treatment of foreigners and the marginalization of the vulnerable by people in power. Because Hagar is an Egyptian. She's poor. She's in servitude. She's female. She's extremely vulnerable for all these reasons. And so she's in no position to fight back when Sarah begins mistreating her. Exactly what that word mistreating means, we don't know, except that again, the author of Genesis is doing something deliberate here because it's the same word that is used later to describe how the Egyptians treat the Israelites, how Pharaoh acts towards the Israelites they when they are in slavery. And just as Hagar flees from oppression into the desert, so the descendants of, Hera, of Sarah will flee from Pharaoh into the desert. In a sobering echo of words, The foremother of the Israelite nation, when she is in power, mistreats a vulnerable Egyptian. Just as centuries later, the Egyptians, when they're in power, will mistreat vulnerable Israelites. And so many sermon number four could be on the danger of power, the mistreatment of foreigners and the more vulnerable, and the need to use whatever power we have to lift up those who are weaker than ourselves, not to lord it over them, just as God in Christ gave up his power so that we might become strong in him. Mini-sermon number five could be preached on faith versus works. And this actually is a sermon that was preached by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4, on this very passage from Genesis, as he links Abraham's union with Hagar to works-based righteousness, an attempt by Abraham to fulfill the promises of God on his own strength rather than relying on faith. And Paul links Abraham's union with Sarah to the free gift of salvation available through Jesus Christ to all who believe. This story, Paul says, is an allegory of the two covenants the old covenant based on the law, and the new covenant based on grace. And so many sermon number five could be about not trusting our own strength and our own works and our own understanding to save us, but leaning on the grace of God. And each of these sermons is tapping into a truth present in this story because it is a complicated story filled with complicated people And so here's a sixth and final sermon, and this is the one I want to leave with you today. Because in this world, filled with failures and mixed motives and confused understandings, our God is the God who sees each of us where we are in any of those scenarios, in the midst of our doubt and our sins and our failures and our confusions, and he doesn't turn his face away, but he comes to us with healing and forgiveness and love. In Genesis 16, chapter, or Genesis 16, verse 7, 
when all the humans have chosen their own paths, when they've all caused pain to each other and are going their own way, God steps in. And God finds Hagar in the wilderness. And he calls her by name. Hagar, servant of Sarai. It's the only record in all of the Old Testament of God addressing a woman by name. Hagar gets that privilege. He knows exactly who she is and exactly how she came to be there. He knows she is pregnant and alone and so vulnerable. She's out in the wilderness on her way to Egypt, 150 miles from her home. He also knows that she's not completely innocent, that she did use her pregnancy to cause her mistress pain, but that that pain has been turned back on her hundredfold since. And here is one of the beautiful truths of this story. There is absolutely no record of Hagar praying up until this point. There's no sign that she worships the God of her, of her master and mistress. There's no evidence that she had the right words or the right attitude or the right motives or anything that we believe would call God's attention. But she didn't need them. The Lord has given heed to your affliction, she is told by the angel of the Lord, who is revealed to be God himself. And other translations say, the Lord has seen your distress. He saw when you were being mistreated by Sarah. He was there. He was watching out for you. In the midst of the confusing story in which everyone is hurt and no one is completely innocent, he was right there with you. And this heartbreaking drama has been caused to you through the sins of others, and it will be turned to a blessing. Your son will be named Ishmael which means God hears. A permanent reminder of God's presence with you. And he will be a child of promise, and he will father nations, just like Sarah's children will. In wonder, Hagar recognizes that she is in the presence of God. A God who knows her by name. A God who has come to her, not to condemn her, but to heal her. And so she, the foreigner, the slave girl, she has the honor that no one else in all of Scripture is given. She gives God a new name. El Roy, she calls him. The God who sees. The God of my seeing. And it's a name that holds a lot. It could mean the God who sees me, who looks at me, who looks out for me. And it could mean the God whom I have seen and lived And Hagar probably meant it to mean both and all, all together, because she had seen the God who had seen her, and she had lived. Friends, we serve an amazing God, El Roy, the one who steps right into the midst of our messes, our broken relationships, our confusing situations, our desert wanderings, our midnight tears. And he says, I have seen your ways, and I will heal you. He doesn't just leave us to our own deserts. He never washes his hands of us and says, you broke it, you fix it. Never. Christ's compassionate heart is drawn to sinners and sufferers and those in need. 
While we were still sinners, Christ came to us right in the midst of our mess and died for us so that we might have life. I have seen your ways and I will heal you. Thanks be to the God who sees. Elroy. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.